Rehabbing Podcast. We present our new mini-series, Connecting the Dots, Researcher and Community. In this series of episodes, we aim to bridge the gap between research and the community by hosting accessible and casual conversations between a leading researcher and an individual with lived experience. In case you didn't know, a person with lived experience is someone who has personal, first-hand experience with a health condition or injury and has insights to share about their recovery. Here, we provide an opportunity for researchers to communicate with the community, their research aims, and give an individual with lived experience the chance to ask their burning questions about research. In this episode, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Kara Patterson, a University Health Network Senior Scientist and Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Toronto and Monica Shipsinska, a person who has lived with physical disability for 18 years as a result of stroke. Both individuals will get a chance to ask each other questions and discuss real-world applications of research to daily life. My name is Lucas, and I'm a recent PhD from the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at the University of Toronto wherein I studied some of the factors associated with and ways to improve gait asymmetry in the stroke population. So we begin with introductions. I'll let you, Dr. Patterson, go first. So please tell us a bit about yourself and the research that you do and how you know Monica. Uh, so my name is Dr. Kara Patterson, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Toronto and a senior scientist at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. A little bit about my work. Um, I'm interested as a initially as a physiotherapist and then becoming a scientist in trying to improve um, neurorehabilitation practice in order to help people living with neurological conditions to um, recover and improve their mobility. So things like walking and their ability to balance. And the ways that we do that, um, we're looking at things like the quality of the walking pattern, so gait symmetry, as you mentioned in your introduction, Lucas, and then also looking to use um, some novel interventions, things like use of music and rhythm, as well as the use of dance to try and improve walking and balance. So um, Monica was introduced, uh, we were introduced by another person working in our lab, Yashoda Sharma, who was the research coordinator for one of our studies. And I had initially asked, so I hadn't met Monica in person, but I had initially asked Yashoda if she had any idea or suggestions of people that had worked with us in our research program before who might be interested in being involved on some grant applications that we were putting in. And so uh, Yashoda thought of Monica. She said, actually, I do have somebody in mind. Excellent. And then you, Monica, can you please tell us a bit about yourself, your experience, and what a day in the life of Monica is like? Sure. My name is Monica Chopinska. I am, I guess, a stroke or a brain injury survivor. I have had, uh, I've been living with a physical disability for about 20 years, 18 years to be exact. In the meantime, I have managed to get a university degree a college diploma, and have worked full-time. I live independently. Currently, my mother lives with me so that I can support her while she's recovering from some illnesses. I have traveled tremendously, and I have a hemiplegia, which means that my left side is weak. I can't move my uh, wrist, my ankle, my fingers, my toes. But I am trying to live a very full life, enjoy as much as I can. And to be honest, I pretty much work to pay for physiotherapy. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it sure feels like that sometimes. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so now today I want to really give the two of you this platform to discuss research from the standpoint of the researcher and the participant and allow each of you to ask one another some burning questions about 
uh, research from those viewpoints. So you've prepared some questions, and I think we can probably dive right in, starting with Monica to kick us off. So go ahead, uh, Monica. Hi, Kara. It's great to see you again. It's been a while. Um, it's wonderful to see you here. And I remember when last we talked, you told me a little bit about your personal story. You told me a little bit about your research. Could you tell us about your research and the areas that you are focusing in? Sure. It's good to see you too, Monica. A little bit about my research. Yes. So um, I, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, I'm a physiotherapist. And so my interest is primarily in trying to, first of all, understand the challenges that people who have neurological conditions face when they're trying to walk and when they're trying to balance. So stroke is the primary uh, population that I work in, but have also done some work with people who have brain injury. And um, there's some work in my lab working with people who've had multiple sclerosis. There's a student who's, work, who's working on that as well. And um, primarily, there are two kind of themes or tracks to the work that I do. The first is, first of all, studying or trying to understand um, how walking and balance are affected. And most research focuses on, um, when it's talking about walking, is looking at how do we increase speed or how do we increase endurance? How do we help people walk faster and how do we help people walk longer? And those are important, of course. Um, but I'm a little more interested in how people are walking. So when we walk, we tend to walk in a very symmetrical way. Um, our steps are the same length. The time that we spend on each leg is the same. And oftentimes in different neurological conditions, that gets disrupted. And we think there's probably a bunch of different consequences associated with that that could be issues further on down the road of recovery. So things like pain and joint discomfort and perhaps even things like bone density loss. And so we look to understand why that is. And then we're also interested in trying to help people um, recover that part of their walking as well. And then the other piece of um, our, the other track of our research looks at some interventions. So trying to understand um, how can we design interventions that people enjoy? How can we make them more effective? Um, and the area of research that I think you've been involved in is our dance work. So we're looking at using an adopted dance program to help people um, improve walking and balance, but also to have a little bit of fun to make it enjoyable. I can totally relate to the point you're talking about with the symmetry of walking and how crucial it is. Having become disabled at 30 years old, I'm so worried about the hip damage, knee damage I'm causing. And already I have some strange foot deformities that are starting to happen, which are painful and uncomfortable. So definitely that kind of research I can see being crucial. And as for the fun, yes, dancing is wonderful. I really miss dancing and I really miss being able to move the same way I did. And if you can incorporate that, I would love to participate in a dance physiotherapy class. But when you do your research, how, how does this research actually influence the therapy that will be developed? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a big issue that researchers struggle with. And also on the other end, clinicians um, struggle with as well. And it's something that's been gaining a lot of attention over the years. So for example, when I write a grant to get the money to do research, I have to put in a plan called a knowledge translation plan, which is essentially describing what you just asked. Knowledge translation means when we take the, what we've learned from research and we try to put it into clinical practice. And so you have to write a plan. But it turns out that it's such a huge task to do that that now it's its own field of study. So there are actually scientists that like me, but they focus primarily on the concept of knowledge translation. What's the best way to try and facilitate research into practice? How do we support clinicians to help them use this information? It turns out it's a really complex issue. Um, specifically for my work, um, it's interesting because it really depends on what study it is. So for example, the work with dance, 
Um, I'd been invited to give a few talks at different venues where there's clinicians in the audience. And I usually very, it's very nice. I usually get quite a few people come up to me after the talk and they ask, how could we do this? How could we create a dance class where I practice? And so that's a really direct way. And I've found that people, um, people are already trying to find ways to put it into practice. And I think partly it's easy because people are interested in it. There's a lot of physiotherapists who enjoy dance themselves. And also you just need a space and music to do that intervention. So it's pretty easy for them to implement it. That some of our other work where we use equipment or we have to have software that, you know, for example, we provide feedback to people walking about their, the symmetry of their walking. And we give them feedback as they're practicing to see if that influences how they walk and if we can improve it with practice but that requires equipment. It requires a software program to create the feedback. And so those are, um, make it a little more difficult for clinicians to just take it and drop it into their practice. And it requires probably a little bit more work after the study is done, not a little bit, a lot more work after the study is done. So it's, um, it's a big challenge trying to get research to move into therapy. (laughs) And, uh, Um, We're working on trying to improve it. We have a website from my lab and we just hired a a really smart research uh, assistant, a work-study student from the University of Toronto, who's making some short videos to put on our website, which are going to be um, describing the work that we do, but in language that everybody can understand. So we're moving all that research jargon. And so just trying to make it a little more accessible for people so they can just come to our website and find out what we do right away and just trying to get direct messaging to the public. I think that's great because I know that I often look for exercise tips if I have an injury or if I'm sore and I can't get to the physio right away to help that. That would be wonderful. You had mentioned about you were concerned about your walking and that you've developed some pain it's really interesting to me because right now, when um, right now what we know about particularly people with stroke, a lot of research doesn't follow people much after, say, two or three years after stroke. And as far as I'm aware, nobody has really described or looked at some of the musculoskeletal, like the aches and pains or the concerns about their joints. Um, we're, we're actually doing a survey right now where we're asking people about that. But I do think it's a huge area that um, that is under-researched, that people haven't looked at that very much. So it's interesting to hear you say that's important to you because that's um, really good information to have. It lets us know we're on the right track when we're thinking about things like, oh, I think we should describe this or I think we should do a survey about this to find out if it's an issue or a problem. So to hear you say that, yeah, actually it is, it helps us. That's really good to hear in the sense that it helps us know we're on the right track, that we're doing something that might be useful. I think so. I think you are on the right track. I think that looking at sort of the residual damage of having an asymmetrical gait while you're moving is huge. And I think that it's also a great argument that then if anyone wants to advocate for proper care and rehabilitation for people with neurological disorders through the government, because if you find that enough people are getting secondary injuries and having to have a, um, a hip replacement quicker or a knee replacement quicker or whatever it may be, or they're immobilized, they need personal care, then it could save the government money by providing people with proper physiotherapy earlier on to try and mitigate that damage, right? So I'm glad you're looking into that, definitely. Yeah, you raise a really good point about this idea of having to advocate or or try to influence um, policy in a sense about what are you what do you, what should we be focusing on when we help people with therapy? Because um, oftentimes in our work. In- Lucas might even be able to talk about this a bit because he was interested in symmetry as well. I kind of find there's two camps. So I have some people who are like, yep, I I see where you're going with this. I think symmetry is also an important feature of walking. We should be focusing on, on trying to help people recover that. And then I have, then there's another camp of people who are like, you know what? Um, That's the best, like that, that represents the best that people can walk because they have hemiplegia. And 
you know, it's more important that they can walk at a certain speed or that they can walk far. So why are you even wasting time worrying about this? You should really be focusing on walking uh, speed and endurance because that's related to quote unquote function. And, but so it's very difficult to sometimes to make the argument that maybe in the short term, yes. And I'm not disputing that those are two important features we should be concerned about. And people with stroke tell us that's important to them, but long-term trying to make that pitch about, but we long-term, this could be a bigger issue. Um, but we don't know because nobody's described it yet. So yeah. And then, and then you're right. If we can show that, then it makes it much easier in the short term to make the argument that no, we should be caring about symmetry as well. Um, but you also, I'm going to, I need to take notes after this conversation, get uh, good ideas. We didn't ask about joint replacements, but that would be really interesting to, um, ask people with stroke about whether or not they've had to get a joint replacement. And I think too, partly because the age of onset of stroke is getting younger. So people are walking this way and walking for longer. Um, And so the longer you expose someone to asymmetry, the more likely these these secondary musculoskeletal issues could happen. So joint, that's that's an excellent point. It would be interesting to know. I had no idea that you're finding that Unfortunately, stroke uh, occurrence is happening in a younger population. That's very, very disturbing, isn't it? Not that we want seniors to get it, but it's it's very sad. Yes. Yeah. I've even noticed it over my career of doing research from the time I was a graduate student to the time now. Um, oh, my goodness. How long has that been? About 11 years. And when I look at the research groups that we, when we calculate things like what's the average age of the group and what's the gender split and those types of things, I've noticed over the years, my study, that average age of people in my study who've had a stroke is, is decreasing. But yeah, it is, it is a trend, unfortunately. Kara, you mentioned that Monica did participate in some of the research that we are doing I think you had some questions about what Monica's experience was like. So uh, why don't we kick the conversation in that direction? Yeah, Monica, so I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about what your experience is like participating in research studies. And I think you might have participated in others from other labs. So it doesn't have to necessarily be related to the studies that uh, you've helped us out with. Um, But yeah, I'm really interested in what your experience is and maybe a little bit about maybe a a significant experience in research that had an impact on you, either negative or positive, something that stands out in your mind about having participated in a research study. Sure, sure. So I think I was very curious about what this research was all about, right? Because we live in Toronto. We have these great hospitals and centers all downtown. So whenever I go to a hospital to visit someone, I see all kinds of posters about research, but usually you can participate. And then I happened to be at the rehab center and saw the posters for different studies, including yours. And I thought, you know, I have the time, I can do this. And I was so curious, what does it look like? And the idea of, of having an opportunity to witness a new method being tested, an experiment, and science, really science. I mean, you read about science, but you don't really think you're going to participate in science. So for me, the experience in, in, in being in a study was very exciting, very novel. I found it was super friendly. I was surprised by how small the group I was in was, because one study I was by myself, but that was just the nature of the study. But in your study, we were just a group, and I think there were six of us initially, and then maybe five or something. So it was very small. And the detail... And sort of the friendliness and just the human aspect of it was so interesting to me that it didn't seem like I was in a lab. Like we were just doing certain things. We were told this is general idea of the study and there's a cohort that's going to be a control group and a cohort that's not a control group. And then I guess you sort of figure out which one you're in because of what you're doing. But it was was something that was very positive. It was very interesting because I saw where the science is happening and what the notions are. I found I found that I met other people. So it was incredibly motivating because I met people who have had stroke and have lives and are doing things. So we were able to bond a little bit and talk a little bit and joke a little bit. And that was very cool. And um, I just found that everybody was so supportive. 
And these young, really smart people are being the research assistants and are running their PhDs. And I mean, when you think about someone who has a PhD, you have a lot of respect for them because you realize that they've spent so much time educating themselves, so much time working towards a goal, and then they're creating knowledge. And after all, I mean, as I said, I have been in physiotherapy for, well, at least, I guess, 25 years because of, of what happened to me. But these people are creating the methods that could potentially make me better, potentially make the world better. It's very, very, very rewarding, really exciting. So I think for me, it was just a very rewarding, exciting experience that was fulfilled my curiosity about what is this research. I hope that answers your question. Definitely. Yeah, that's so great to hear. We're trying to understand a little, or I'm interested in understanding a little bit the experience of research from the perspective of the person who volunteers so that we can, first of all, recruitment, as you mentioned, the group was smaller than you expected. It was smaller than we expected too, because <laughs> trying to, it, it takes a lot of time, particularly if you're doing a study where it's coming multiple times a week over a prolonged period of time. It's, you know, you're asking people to give up a significant amount of time. We try to make sure that it doesn't cost them anything. So we, we, if we have a grant, we're able to cost cover people's costs in terms of travel. Um, but I'm interested in, in understanding it so that we can make it better or more rewarding or make it at least easier. And if there are any negative or positive experiences, it's helpful for us to know. So if I, yeah, I was curious if there was anything that stood out in your mind that um, maybe had an impact on you or, or influenced the way you thought about research. So I think uh, for me personally, I realized that this kind of research is, is, is on painfully slow. I mean, you're watching people do something over weeks and is there a change? Is there not a change? And, and then you have so many people, you know, what do we do in our own time? Uh, how do we influence that on our own time? Because you're not seeing what we do in our own time. Um, but I think the, one of the significant aspects as a person participating in such a thing is I met other people who had the same goal, right? Who had an interest in science who had an interest in, in participating in something like this, had the time and wanted to improve their physical ability because we all want to improve our physical ability. Nobody in a science group wants to be the way they are right now, right? We're unhappy with the way that our bodies are. And, and having that group, I feel like we wanted to kind of continue and stay together somehow and, and kind of keep each other motivated in some kind of exercise. Of course, you know, COVID happened and all this other stuff happened and you got to let go of these things. But I think you're building a little community at that point that can be very helpful and it can be very motivating to everybody because I think all of us with, with, with physical or cognitive deficit caused by illness or accident, you mourn that, you grieve that and it comes in waves, right? Sometimes you're very positive about who you are and how, what you've accomplished. And sometimes you feel, oh, you know, I wish it was better. This is kind of sucks and why. So it's nice mm -hmm. to have that little support group that kind of pops up out of nowhere. Right. I liked how you worded that. It encapsulates things. This They're unhappy with the way their bodies are at the moment. That's really, um, that's, I like that. The, um, the social aspect or the making the connection, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, when we first, so the study that you participated in is the randomized controlled trial, which is kind of the gold standard, as I'm sure you're aware of having experience in research, you know, there's a control group and then the treatment group. And um, that's kind of the, we can do a lot of work up leading up to that, but that the results of that trial are what let clinicians know, okay, this, this, this intervention that they've come up with actually does work. And it's not just the placebo effect because they had a control group. But we did uh, some work leading up to that to try and work out, okay, what should this dance program look like? You know, where, uh, you know, how long should it be? Though, is it safe? Those types of things, which was a feasibility study we did beforehand. And it was interesting because the, the things that we observed kind of parallel what you just described to me, they created this really tight-knit social bond or connection with each other. And that's not uncommon in research with people who've had stroke, and I imagine in other areas as well. But when you've had a group experience or a group intervention, you put some people in a room who have some sort of shared experience. And then, of course, that's kind of a, a, a base for them to build a relationship with. 
Um, but they were so connected with each other and I'd never witnessed that before. And, and we're kind of doing a bit of research because I suspect the dancing actually helps facilitate that a bit. But what they did was they started a Facebook group to keep in touch after the fact. And that really drove home for me how important this is, this idea that you need a space that you can connect with people and talk about your experiences. And now that I say that, it sounds silly because it kind of sounds obvious, but at the time it wasn't. And so that's also started us off on some different research trying to find out, okay, well, what, why is that important to people and how can we create spaces and, and groups that can facilitate that for people. So that's interesting. The other piece that you said about too, that it's interesting because when I talk with other researchers, there's kind of this belief that, okay, well, what motivates people to participate in our research anyways, rehabilitation research, is that we, we're aware that there's this problem. I think you mentioned in the introduction, this idea that you work to pay for physio, which is a sad thing to say that, you know, because everybody should have access to the rehab that they need. But unfortunately, I think the the rehab runs out before people have fully reached where they wanted to be in their recovery. So you're usually left to find your own. And if you can afford to buy private care, then, then you can do that. But if not, then there's not many options for you. And so there's kind of this prevailing belief that in rehab research, part of what might motivate people is that they're getting treatment that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. So the intervention in the study themselves but I, it, I find it interesting that you had said, but what also motivated you, and it seems to be the more, what well, was the one you named first anyways, was a curiosity about science and wanting to be involved in that. That's interesting to me. That's not necessarily something that scientists think. From the conversations I have, I don't think that's the first thing that comes to mind when you start to say, well, why do people participate and how can we try and motivate people to participate? So it's really interesting. Curiosity, which is also the reason why people go into science. <laughs> It's curiosity. It, it is interesting, right? Like, as I said, for me, around the same time, I was going a lot to Princess Margaret Hospital. I was going a lot to Toronto General Hospital. I was seeing a lot of research studies. I was always curious, what is this? What is this? What is this? And then finally, I, I had a chance to go quite frequently to the rehab hospital and saw and saw your stuff, poster. So it is interesting. Of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, hey, Maybe I'll get some cool therapy. This is awesome, <laughs> right? And I mean, honestly, when I say, you know, work to pay for physio, it's not quite so simple. But but if I had a dream come true and someone said, here, Monica, have your life, live out the next five years, any possible way you wish, part of it would be, you know, snorkeling with the most beautiful tropical fish I could every day and have a physio and a massage therapist with me all the time, Right. So these things, I think, depending who you are and where you are at in your own kind of rehabilitation and what, what your goals are, I think those things motivate you. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, always looking at proper exercise. Excellent. I think that's some really eye-opening um, parts of research participation from Monica's point of view. And, and Karen, I think you both had some really good points on the research experience. Now, Monica, you mentioned you're from Toronto and you have access to the hospitals and the research centers in this big city that we live in. But I think you had some questions about uh, more rural settings and how can somebody who isn't living in the city participate in research and, and get the therapy that they need? Yeah, definitely. I mean, before I got sick and I had the issue... You know, my dream was to live up someplace north in Alaska or in the Yukon and do my own thing. Um, and eventually, because of health complications, not only physical, but also other, realized, you know, better not, better hang back in the city and, and use the resources that I have available to me. But there are people elsewhere. So what do they do? How do they manage? Um, first of all, how do they, can they participate in research? Yeah, that's the... Uh... A great question that is something that's kind of, again, another one of these um, areas that are receiving more and more attention. So um, it's, it's more, it's, it's difficult. Research tends to happen or clustered around the universities, right? So kind of in that little radius around the universities. But what is opening up the possibility and what people are interested in a little bit more now, particularly related to rehabilitation research, is the concept of tele-rehabilitation. So using um, like Zoom, like conferencing, video conferencing, or even just on the phone, but trying to connect with people 
in their communities. So somebody from Toronto would call somebody, say, in Thunder Bay is the example that um, we're working with that um, that's opening up some opportunities. But it's not the same experience. So we, um, well, before COVID and the pandemic, as you already put in uh, mentions there, that's kind of put a wrench into things. But um, before the pandemic, I was talking with a um, a clinician up in Thunder Bay who was interested in trying to start a dance program up there. And so I was helping and consulting with them through video conferencing. Um, but also we've looked at trying to live stream dance classes so that people in their home can participate. And so it's kind of, um, it's an, it's a nice option to have. I, unfortunately, I don't think it really fully replicates the experience of being there in person but um, at least it's an it's an option for people living in rural areas. Is this idea of of using um, the technology that we have so people can either receive therapy and or participate in research? It's at least something, right? It's not perfect, but it's it's something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, it's yeah. not perfect, but it's something better than nothing. Yeah. So so yeah, Kara. One of the things I'm wondering about also is. <clears throat> There are different methods uh, for physiotherapy, as far as I know. I only know one really well, but how do therapists who work or universities that teach uh, decide on what's the best method for people to apply to rehabilitation? I teach in the physiotherapy program at the University of Toronto, and I also am a physiotherapist, so I kind of can speak from both those perspectives. the approach that we take uh, both in our training as physios and then in education as people who train the future of our profession is to graduate what we call a generalist. So somebody who has knowledge about a bunch of different things, approaches, techniques, different fields like neurological physiotherapy, orthopedic physical therapy, um, so that they can be put in a situation and then, and then, pretty much take on whatever's presented to them. But the other emphasis is placed on um, this term of being a lifelong learner. So the idea that we're kind of setting you up and giving you the tools to get you started as a physiotherapist, but that, that when you graduate, your journey doesn't end there. That once you've graduated, you're always expected to continue to learn and develop your skills because the science is always changing because we're doing new studies and coming out with new information. So, um, Physiotherapists will take what's called professional development or continuing education courses um, throughout their career. So where they go back into a classroom or they go to a conference and they take classes or they go to research um, talks to learn the new information. But how they decide on a which is the best approach, it, it's really physios focus on tailoring it to their patients. So it's actually probably links back to the concept that we had about how does research translate into clinical practice, um, which I can circle back to if I don't get too far down one path. But um, this idea that a, cl- a clinician works with their patient, they ask the person what their goals are, um, you know, what, what's bothering you, what's your issue, what are your goals, and then they work together to develop a plan and then they select from their kind of toolbox which techniques and which approaches do I think are going to help this particular person in front of me right now achieve those goals i see so it's really really um a question of professionalism within the clinic and professionalism of the individual and being able to have access to further training so that they can become experts in whatever areas interest them or their clients and then be able to pull that information together absolutely so i guess um if someone has a choice they should really be interviewing the clinic they're going to and saying, so where have you gone for your professional development? What do you know about this? Yeah. In order to buy the best possible service. Absolutely. That's the way it is. But are there, are there therapies that are measured against each other or how do you know that this is no longer works? Like, let me just illustrate this for you. So I had a stroke when I was 24 and I became hemiplegic Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, I went to an OHIP-funded clinic, and the lady put on a bunch of electrodes on my thigh and a bunch of electrodes on my arm for two months and kept pumping electricity through me, and that was fine. 
And you know what? I recovered fully. And eventually someone told me, yeah, but that was neuroplasticity. So don't you worry about that. That just happened because that's how it happens. Mm-hmm. That electrode didn't have anything to do with it. And then I know I had a, another stroke and, and, and the same thing happened. I was paraplegic and I did all kinds of manipulative therapy and I did all kinds of other therapy and it happened very, very slowly. And, and I got some movement back and things were coming back. And they said, oh, but that's the physiotherapy. But the electrodes would not help you. Don't use the electrodes. They'll be really bad for you, right? And then just recently, somebody else said to me, oh, no, you need to use the electrodes. That's going to be really great for you. Uh, Start using them. You're going to rebuild your muscles. You'll be repowering your brain. Just keep using the electrodes. They're fantastic. So how do I know? I mean, I can experience what I'm doing, but how do physiotherapists know? Mm -hmm. Who guides them? Yeah. That's a really interesting experience. And you just showed the whole kind of circle of uh, how things come and go. That's really interesting, Monica. Um, Yeah, how do you know? (laughs) This is a thing we struggle with. So there's a couple of challenges um, that I see from my perspective as a a person who used to practice clinically as a physio and now does uh, does research. the, as I mentioned in the, before, the gold standard, kind of the really the, the way that's been touted as the, this is the way we definitively know what's better, is to do a research study where you compare these things head to head and you take the same measurements in each group, whatever you're interested in. So I want to see if this intervention makes people walk faster or makes people um, have better balance. And then you pick a measure and you measure at the beginning and the end and you see which group improves better. And then at the end of the day, the scientist kind of says, oh, now we know that this intervention A is better than intervention B, and everybody should receive this intervention. Um, And so the way people thought it should work is that then clinicians will read these papers and then say, oh, okay, I should use intervention A from now on. But that's never the way that it works (laughs) because there's so many other factors. But in rehab... Uh, it's so multidimensional and there's so many factors that play into the interventions that people receive in person as a person with stroke, they go to rehab, they receive all different kinds of approaches and interventions. And it's a real mixed model, a mixed bag that's tailored specifically to them. But then in science, we say, okay, everybody's going to get this exact same intervention, rehab intervention. And then that's, Um, that's what we test. But in reality, that intervention is not going to be the exact same way applied clinically because you've just taken away the whole thing that makes rehab and physiotherapy unique, which is communicating with the patient, asking them what their goals are, and then coming up with an individualized treatment plan. So I think that's what complicates things of knowing which one's best because in reality, we take a bunch of people who've had a, a stroke And they have different lives, different backgrounds, different goals. They have different um, impairments because no one, no stroke is the same across different people. And some of them get better and some of them don't. And then we kind of take an average. And if the average got better, then we say, oh, this is something we should use. This is great. But the reality is the clinician then has to decide, but you did that in a group. I'm dealing with a person one-on-one. How do I know that the person I'm dealing with is the one who gets better or the one who doesn't? Um, So it's a huge problem for them to know. It's not really a good answer in terms of giving you the final answer of how do they know, but I think clinicians really just focus on, I'm going to measure the goals that my patient has. I'm going to ask them what they want to improve. We'll take measurements, and then I'm going to continually monitor them to see how they respond. And if they get better... And if they move towards the goals they want to achieve, I keep doing what I'm doing. And if I see that they don't, then I'm going to change up my plan. No, it is it is very interesting how things can move forward and how can they help. And I think the point that you said that really resonates with me is every brain injury is different. And you can't always say, oh, just because this worked for Joe is going to work for you know Mark. No, not necessarily. Because every brain injury is different and everybody has a different lifestyle, nutrition, stress, happiness, all these things, level of, 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 of ability to practice. But I think using different methods and, and benefiting from that, that research can help a change a person's life, right? And, and that's why it's so important. Yeah. 
That's the goal anyways. Sometimes it is very maddeningly slow though, as you mentioned. It, it can be the the progress is is not uh you'd like it to be faster. That's for sure. Monica, you've mentioned some things that were important to you and things that you think research could um focus on, but yeah, Kara, you had some questions about where science can go next and where stroke rehab can go next. Yeah. Um, what do you feel research should be focusing on? Like, what are some of the questions that you have about recovery and stroke that you think, you know, people aren't paying attention to this, but you, you need to be looking into it? Is there anything that stands out in your mind? I do think that there's a, probably you know, hundreds, if not thousands of different questions scientists can ask themselves and and try and find answers. I, I think that Luckily, there's so many universities and so many departments, and there's lots of people who are doing all kinds of research, so these questions are being answered. But I think almost there's, for me, not being an expert in research, not having read rehabilitation research, there may be things like that are much more practical in a sense without development of new technology or without anything else to seeing the effect of therapy on people. Um, For example, I was struck when I go to physiotherapy and I see people getting their therapy treatments of all kinds of levels and their movement and what they're trying to get. And then I'll go to a country like Poland or Ecuador or Peru. And I notice people who have physical disabilities who look, which look like a stroke hemoplegia and their movement and their stiffness and their hip hikes and their knee extensions. And I think, wow, you know, maybe in Canada it's really great, but what does it mean not to have physio? And that differential of what does it mean to have physio, what does it mean not to have physio? Just even something like that, where how much better are you? And again, it's tricky. How do you research something that's so unique to every person? But that, but seeing that mm-hmm. benefit of quality of life, seeing the cost benefit of being able to have a better life and work, perhaps, or contribute or in some way be more independent. So that's one aspect of research. I think it's the cost of of not having rehab or or the incorrect rehab. And then I personally am always hoping that scientists are going to be looking at interventions that include the brain and, and neuroscience and technology and maybe stimulate the brain, stimulate the neurons to to reconnect for neuroplasticity with actual stimulation directly to the brain, um, maybe not necessarily through some kind of um, apparatus that goes in the brain, but on the outside of the brain. And I know that that kind of technology is being used for applications at this stage, probably more for military than for rehabilitative, but hopefully those will come because the brain as you know, I, I, I only think it's marvelous and there is neuroplasticity, right? And you could retrain things and you could rechange pathways. But I think we have an opportunity to use functional MRIs and use other neurostimulation technology to really help. I also think that just for the function, like the functional electrical stimulation therapy that you were talking about, they say that neuroplasticity occurs much earlier, right after the injury, not so much, you know, 30 years or 20 years later, like in my case. Um, That needs to be propagated and given to people so they can have the right rehab immediately. So that intervention, when should intervention happen? And most interventions should happen. Um, I'm also curious about longevity of, of rehabilitation, understanding that there are, as you mentioned, more and more people who are younger, younger are becoming disabled. I think it's, you know, a lot (laughs) just from hearing you talk, like, have you sought out information yourself to educate yourself or is this, did you gain your information through conversations with therapists or? Well, I am very lucky that I do have a very knowledgeable therapist. Uh, he's a dancer, actually, so <laughs> up your alley. But he is—he reads a lot. He does a lot of professional development. 
And so he'll share some ideas with me about what works, what doesn't work. I keep asking him about when is the implant coming? When can I get my neuro implant? Uh-huh. Yeah. He says, you know, not yet. <laughs> but so that's kind of interesting to have a guide. I think a physiotherapist becomes almost a, in part a life coach mm-hmm. where they not only do the physical aspect, but they also help you through the ups and downs and you see them all the time. Mm-hmm. But I also am curious about science a little bit and about rehabilitation so if I hear about something then I pursue it and try and find out and see what I can do Mm um I before my before my injury I was very physically active and able physically able Mm -hmm. and I never thought about that and then I think one time in a conversation with some other therapist it occurred to me that my brain was wired for physical activity. Not that I was physically up, but my brain was wired for that. Mm. So I should be still wired, but I, of course I have, a, I, have a, I have an injury. And so that kind of changed my mind frame and made me think, you know, what is this brain and how do I motivate it? But it's not so easy. It's easier to think about it than to physically do it. But I, 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 I think, for example... I love swimming. So swimming is fantastic. It gives me a lot of pleasure. This idea that you you are pursuing as a scientist with dance and music, that's very pleasurable. Mm -hmm. That can be really fun. I think that's, that's a nice thing to do for yourself. So to make therapy really also enjoyable would be easier. Yeah. Because I think... It can be very difficult otherwise. Yeah. Uh, the piece about it being enjoyable is is um, something that, yeah, you're like, that's, uh, it's interesting because we've been doing some qualitative research. So where we interview people, instead of just taking measurements, we actually speak to people and, and get data that way to find out their thoughts and their experience, things you, you can't measure, right? You can't, they're not tangible. And this, um, the, it, we found that with the adapted dance program, people talked about it being enjoyable. Like they felt they still got improvement, but they also enjoyed it. And then I think too, you were kind of talking about the grieving process before and and this idea of um, what we found was people talking about, I enter this dance class and I, and I feel that I'm not, you know, quote unquote, a patient. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a patient in a stroke, um, or I'm a person and I'm learning how to dance like and that was really powerful for them and really motivating and and then the fact that it was enjoyable and fun at the same time but they still had the motivation and the intent to improve but they just made it enjoyable for them and as you mentioned swimming too and I, I think I think we could probably do more about that is okay how can we take the activities that people enjoy and make that therapeutic but, but not to the point where you've taken all the joy out of it <laughs> but you know capitalize on what people enjoy and what makes them feel whole and, and human and uh yeah that's interesting okay so this has been great and i think we're probably winding down um towards the end of our conversation here so i guess i just wanted to let you both have the opportunity to, for any final thoughts or any final questions um for each other um Monica, we can start with you. Do you have any final thoughts on the scientific process, your research experience, or or any questions for Kara? I do. It's twofold, I guess. The first question I'll ask is, Kara, about yourself. What made you decide to become a scientist? I mean, you were a physiotherapist. You were already doing uh, this type of work. And then something changed for you. Yeah. So physiotherapy is a program that's... um, a little bit challenging to get into. There's lots of interest and not as many spots and even more so now than when I applied. Um, it's, uh, so I had applied and was, and didn't get in on my first try. And so I was looking at other options. And the other thing that I was interested in when I was an undergraduate was, um, uh, was neuroscience and cellular signaling was what I was interested in. And so I was looking at the option of doing a master's back then. It's like, Oh, if I can't get into physio, um, maybe I'll do some graduate work in that area. But then I did get in um, on the second try. 
And so I went into physiotherapy, the program at Queen's University. But then while I was there and, and I enjoyed it and I, I kind of at the time thought, oh, this is good. And, and right away I knew I enjoyed neuro rehabilitation. Those were the courses that I gravitated towards. Um, but then we had the option when we go on clinical placement. So you have to do classroom theory work, but then you also have to go on placement. So you get practice under the supervision of a therapist doing the clinical skills. And one of the options was to do a research project um, instead of going out on placement. So I did some placements, but then I also did a research project. And that experience was really um, enjoyable for me, the combining the clinical aspect with the research and science part, which I had already been interested in. And I had a mentor who encouraged me, actually, and said, you know, listen, you should think about doing a PhD. I think that could be a good path for you. And so I had the, so I kind of graduated with that thought that I'd probably go back to it. But I did at the time think, well, I've spent all this time in school. I've learned all these skills. I want to get out there. I want to apply what I, what I know. Um, so that's what I did. I worked clinically for a couple of years, but I kind of always knew I'd make my way back. And so I think what finally did it for me is um, as I was practicing, I realized I have more questions than I have answers. You know, like I, I've learned what I what I did in school, um, but kind of as I was working with people, realizing, oh, I, there, there are a lot more questions than there are answers. And some of the things that you uh, brought up in the beginning, like, how do I know which is better? And is this really working? And so I kind of in the end thought, you know, I... Uh, I would like to go back into research to, to try and help the profession and advance a profession from that, from that angle of trying to answer the questions that need to be answered. I see. So it was always a little bit of curiosity and wanting to know more and really measuring an impact and seeing a direction that makes sense. Yeah. That sounds very interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Kara, now that you, you obviously are a scientist, you have a community of scientists in rehabilitation. And where do you see the field going? So I think some of the, the things that you hit on earlier about uh, using brain stimulation. So there is some research that's being done with that, looking at combining brain stimulation with, re with physical rehabilitation. Um, so I definitely think that's a piece that's going to be um, getting more traction in the future. This idea of how do we boost or how do we take advantage of the brain's natural ability for neuroplastic change? How do we give that a bit of a boost and then and take advantage of that with physical rehab to improve recovery? Um, and then I also think really, I know, as I mentioned earlier, one of the challenges with rehabilitation research is that you do all this work and then at the end of the day, the studies come out and say both of these interventions were fine. One's not better than the other. So we have a lot of studies that kind of come out with those kind of lukewarm results, right? Like, both, well, both of them are pretty good and we're not really sure which one's better. So, and then at the end of the day, you're kind of like, why did it, what did I do all that work for? Um, but so I think that rehab research needs to get better at figuring out how do we test that tailoring like how, how do we how do we adapt our research so that we get at more how physiotherapy is actually practiced so this idea of i need to still maintain scientific rigor i need to maintain the the um the control on the intervention but i also need to somehow identify what are the characteristics of the people that respond and what are the characteristics of the people who don't so that when i now do my research i only select the people i think will benefit and for the people who I don't think will benefit, okay, what intervention works for them? So I, I think that's where it needs to go. I think we need to do better on the research side of, of being a little bit closer to how the physios actually do it. That makes sense. That, that make, it must be a very difficult process, I would imagine, though, to try and find those characteristics and say, what is it about it? Yeah, that would be very hard because that would be a bit of science and a bit of sort of human guessing, I guess. Yeah, it's a little bit of guesswork. We have some suspicion so that, and you kind of have to do it a bit retrospectively too. So for example, with, um, with our studies, what we'll do is we'll, we take a bunch of measurements at the beginning that characterize people, but you're right. That's where the guessing comes in. Cause you're like, I don't, what's important to measure. I don't know. So I'm going to measure a bunch of different things I think might be important. And then after the fact, I'll look at, okay, who got better and who kind of plateaued. And then we'll compare those two groups on all these characteristics that we measured. And um, 
yeah, so it's a little bit of guesswork. And then hopefully we get a, like a little kernel of knowledge from that. And then we can move that forward and, and start asking more questions. And yeah, I, and I think too, more conversations about this. I think the uh, like this as uh, talking with people who actually live live that have that experience or have lived with it i know from my own perspective or my own journey of a person who had a medical condition and went through rehab it's very frustrating to be on the other end and recognize there's so much that there aren't answers and there's so much that people don't know and then you feel like you're the expert because you know what you've lived but you don't see it reflected or you don't see it being understood um so i think the other way that rehab research needs to go is to have or conversations with people who we are supposedly trying to help because they have a lot of information that we can uh, learn from as well. Excellent. Uh, so now I guess I'll give you, Kara, uh, the opportunity for any final thoughts that you might have and any final questions you have for Monica about her experiences or her uh, participation in research. Yeah. Monica. Um, what you what the next steps are for you or what your plan is um, either with participating in research or or what you've mentioned you had had a goal to live up in the I think you said Alaska or the Yukon but you've changed you know your goals and your and your plan has changed so I guess I'm interested in what you what you see in the future for yourself and what your what your plans are yeah um, so the easier question research I would love to participate in research, but because I work full time, it's pretty much impossible. And that's actually something I wanted. I'm happy to have an opportunity to share with you that unfortunately it's an interesting cohort, right? That you would grab for people for research yep. who are not working because it already means something. Uh, and, and of course it's harder to run research after hours because you have staff that you have to pay. So that makes it a little bit different. Are you or is anyone else researching mood and rehabilitation? So if someone is in a depressed mood or someone is in a great mood and they're doing rehabilitation and how that exercise would then work out for them, mm -hmm. because I'm sure there's ways to help with mood during rehabilitation through different activities or else not. But anyway, that was mm -hmm. something I was thinking about. Absolutely, Monica, you, you, you've touched on a, a thing that we've ourselves have stumbled on is this idea. And when I say we or ourselves, I mean from me. That's not to mean that there's probably not some other scientist who's already way ahead of me who's done this. But within our group, we've recognized that uh, that dance can improve mood. And that's not nothing new. People knew that. So we've been measuring it ourselves to see how mood can improve. And then also this concept of um, social isolation has been identified by people with stroke as being an issue for them when they go home after the hospital stay or inpatient rehab, they go home and they feel socially isolated, which itself is connected to a bunch of different things, including mood. Um, and what we found was that with the dance group, people really had this powerful sense of connection with both the dance assistants and the dance instructors, as well as other people in the group. And then that in turn helped their mood and also in turn helped their motivation to find other ways to stay active. Um, so yeah, it, it is something we're kind of just at the beginning of that journey of looking at how can we improve mood? And then also does that help improve other things like being motivated and wanting to be more physically active? So yeah, we're kind of, we just kind of found that and we're at the beginning of that journey to investigate. Sounds like an interesting journey for sure. Now you had asked me about my plans. That's a little bit difficult to say. Things often change, but I am still working full time and plan to work for quite a while. So while I'm doing this, I hope to continue with a lot of rehabilitation and personal exercise and wellness, both for my physical and mental health. And I am hoping that I will be able to learn more about different rehabilitation and music and therapy and how it can benefit me. And hopefully also have an opportunity to participate in some capacity in future studies to perhaps help to shape what research will look like and make an even very, very small impact on rehabilitation for others. 
Well, that's great. Uh, thank you, Monica, for sharing um, your experience and your story. That's really inspiring. And Kara, coming on to talk about your research. And I really thank both of you for coming on and, and having this discussion. I think it's going to be really great for our listeners and, and put it out there for both people with lived experience and and researchers that can really dive into some of the issues and some of the questions that maybe don't always get discussed. And hopefully this will be a great avenue for that. And that concludes our very first episode of the Connecting the Dots miniseries. I really hope you enjoyed learning from both Kara and Monica about the application of clinical research to participants' daily lives and ways that scientists have been able to engage participants in research design and objectives. To support our student-run podcasts, subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play Music. If you'd like to read more about rehabilitation research or Rehab Inc., you can visit our website at www.rehabingmag.com podcast. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.